Well, we are going to finish our brief view of the book of Haggai. This period of Israel's history is, uh, is uh, a little dark in the minds of some people, uh, myself included, until recently. But I want to bring you up to speed as to what God is doing through the prophet Haggai. It helps if you hit the right button. I've, I've only done this 300 times. So, as, we, as you heard last week, there was a point in Israel's history, in Judah's history, where they got disciplined by God. This happened in 586 B.C. because of their constant uh, disregarding of God's law. And God promised them in the book of Deuteronomy that if they didn't abide by his law, he would bring another nation in and he would take them to a land they didn't know. That is exactly what he did. God keeps his promises, even the promises to discipline his true children. And so that is what he did. For a period of 70 years, Israel was in captivity in the land of Babylon. The land of Babylon was taken over by the, the kingdom of Persia. And King Cyrus at one point decreed that the captives, and by the way, through the prophet Isaiah, God prophesied hundreds of years before Cyrus actually did this, that a ruler named Cyrus would do, and in fact, declare that Israel could come back to the land. Ezra, the first six chapters, record this first return to the land led by Zerubbabel. Hard word to say. I've practiced. <laughs> During Zerubbabel's reign, they saw the hardship, the, the social ostracization of, uh, of the people around them, the legal trouble they were going to get in if they continued building, and so the building stopped, and God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who were contemporaries, who preached at the same time, to say, get back to work, consider your ways, and this is, this is their message. Uh, subsequently, there was a second return led by Ezra himself. Ezra 7 through 12 records this. And in fact, a third return by Nehemiah. Eventually, Malachi comes on the scene and prophesies. But for our study in the book of Haggai, this is where we are in history. Now, you're all history scholars, right? <laughs> Last week, we saw... Well, first of all, let me just remind you that Haggai is actually, it's only two chapters long, only 38 verses in its totality, but it has four different messages. I've got them for you on the screen, four different very short messages that were designed to turn the people's attention back to the God who brought them back into the land. The first message was we saw last week was about the misplaced priorities they had they had uh, focused on their own dwellings and not the temple not the dwelling of God listen God had not changed his word had not been revoked they had simply listened to the wrong voice and they needed to resume God's calling that's a message for us 
Sometimes we listen to the wrong voices, and we need to resume what God has called us to do. And they did. They obeyed. This is one of the most encouraging prophetic books in the Old Testament because the people of God actually did what God said they should be doing. And as always, when God commands his people, he also gives them instruction in how to maintain their walk of obedience. And so that is what we're going to look at today, maintaining the priorities that are God's. And these three remaining messages, it'll be one message for you, but for Israel it was message two, three, and four. And these messages will light our way as we consider maintaining God's objectives. So the second message that Haggai gives we find in chapter 2 verses 1 to 9 and it reads like this. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O son of, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. First thing God wants us to see in this chapter is that maintaining God's priorities means that we must embrace God's objectives. Israel had done that. They had turned back to a posture of obedience but they also experienced some very complex emotions in the process. And doing God's will, and you know this because you've walked with God in this evil world, and so you've experienced this. Doing God's will can often be tainted with difficult emotions. Disappointment that how things are actually working out are not at all what we originally expected them to be like. The problems revealed in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Now, there may have been some elderly people there who remembered the former temple. And so now that what they can see is this footprint of the new temple, and it isn't nearly the size of the old one. And there's a disappointment here in doing the will of God. How do you see it, Haggai says? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You see, beloved, the first thing God wants us to understand is that he wants your disappointments. He wants that part of your heart. That's not something that surprised the throne room of heaven when it came upon your life. It's his divine, sovereign 
part of his plan for you, that, that things don't always turn out the way you hope they will, and there are disappointments along with obeying God. So how many of you have thought like this from time to time? How can God glorify himself in the likes of this? Anybody ever felt that way? You don't have to raise your hand, uh, but I'm certainly one of them. How can God glorify himself in what my life touches? For some of you young moms, all I do is wipe noses and clean bottoms. You know what? That's part of God's will for your life right now. And you can glorify him. How many, how many times have our weak hearts said, with all my weakness, all the sin that's still in my life, all my slowness to comprehend his ways, how can I be effective for the kingdom of Christ? You ever felt that way? You don't have to answer out loud, but I know you have. Well, you know, in the same way that you would comfort your child or your grandchild when they come to you with their disappointments, your father offers you comfort as well. You see, when your children are all bent out of shape about something that's really insignificant, it's because you have the mature perspective. And that's the same with God. We only see this little bit that's happening. God has the perfect perspective. He has the sovereign perspective. And he will comfort because he is your father. And that's what the message is about to reveal. Can I just remind you, beloved, that God already knows your heart? He already knows your situation. And you may rest your anxieties upon him. Didn't Jesus say that? Give me all your anxieties. Take my burden upon you. My burden is light. You know, when my burden's heavy, you know what? It must be mine. It must not be the one God gave me. <laughs> yeah. Rest your anxieties on the Lord and the truths that he reveals about himself. That's going to be unpacked even more in just a moment. But this is important because, first of all, he gives them commands. And I've summed up these commands with this principle. Behave according to your calling. We cannot seek to live our lives by our human ability. We can't serve the Lord by our human ability. And nor should all the emotional ups and downs of life rule us. Instead, our focus, the focus of our hearts, needs to be that which God has given us in his word. His calling is revealed here. And this is what we believe and stand on. Notice the commands that are given. Verse 3 Three times, I'm sorry, verse 4, three times God says, be strong. He says it to Zerubbabel, he says it to Joshua the high priest, and he says it to the people. So it isn't just the leaders who need to be strong. Everybody is called to be strong and to work, to get about the calling that God has given us and to not fear. And all of these require that we look not at ourselves, but at the God who's called us. How many of us get discouraged that we're not as far down the sanctification pathway as we should be? Hello. <laughs> How many times have you wondered if we're ever going to resemble Christ the way we know we should by this time in our lives? I think that way. Some of us may fear, how will it affect my job advancement if I actually talk to people that I work with about Christ. These are realities. They're realities that we face. And if you're seeking to walk obediently to Christ, you have to come to terms with that, that, that Christ in you comes 
and, and it collides with the evil world that you live in. Who, by the way, and this is not a revelation, but this world is giving itself exponentially more and more to evil. If we're going to be the people of God, we have to understand these things and we have to embrace them and we have to walk in the calling of God. It means that we need to be strong and we're strong by believing the word. We do what God has called us to do. We work and we don't fear what the world has to say to us. Our strength and our confidence come only from the presence of the Lord and that's what Haggai reminds them of next. He, he, he tells them, uh, and I've summed this, this part up, as living lives of trusting God because God calls you to a life of faith. You can't serve Christ in an evil world just by your own, um, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. God reveals in verse 4, look what he says to them. Yet now be strong, he says that three times. At the end of the verse he says, work. What does it say next? For I am with you. God, the ever-present God, is with them. He's also supremely authoritative. Six times in these nine verses, God refers to himself as, through Haggai as the Lord of hosts. That God who, of whom there is none greater, his word and his authority rise above all other voices in this world. The same God who brought this nation out of Egypt also returned them to the land. He actually reminds them of that in verse 5. According, look, look what he says. According to the covenant that I made with you. Now, none of these people were alive when God did this 900 years prior. But his covenant is still in effect because it's the same nation. It's the same group. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in you. This is, this is God who's saying to them that he is unchanging in his nature. These are things that will hold you. This is how you be strong in this world. You trust that the ever-living God is with you in this evil world, and he is supremely authoritative. No other voice has the authority that his voice has over your life, and he is unchanging in his nature. He reminds them that 900 years may have passed, but he's still the same God. He's still the same spirit who's with his people. And we have, that's a truth you can take to the bank, true, isn't it? We don't even question that we have a different spirit. We have the same spirit they did, the same Holy Spirit. And it's a truth that anchors our souls. God's unchanging nature alleviates fear. Last week we saw that our calling is to participate in God's great priority for humanity. That some from every tribe and tongue people and nation will stand around the throne someday and glorify God in eternity. And the same God who promised glory to his temple will bring the true temple of redeemed souls into his glory. I got to share this. this is, Vicky's like, yeah, you got to share this. So we've been, she has a Japanese student that she's been studying the book of John with. I think Vicki might be the only spiritual input this young lady has ever had. And they've been studying the book of John since the beginning of summer. summer. And Thursday morning, this young lady asked Jesus Christ to be her Lord and Savior. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And, and we rejoice that God has another daughter 
who will stand around his throne just like he promised he would. He's faithful. He's ever-present. He's supremely authoritative. He, uh, he never changes. It is not his will that any should perish. But listen, our resources are small and limited. And that can become a challenge to our thinking sometimes in our ability to look to the Lord and to believe that he will fulfill his promises. It's not a God's problem. It's our problem. And that's why he reminds his people that he is faithful to provide. He says in verses 6 through 8, look what he says here on the screen. I will shake the heavens and the earth. <laughs> this is not judgment. He's talking about getting the wealth from these nations and giving it to his people so they can build the temple. I'll shake all nations. Then he says, the silver is mine. The gold is mine. Do you get what God's saying? He says, I created this stuff. I distributed it across earth. I, I know which geographical boundaries this is in. Trust me to get it to you. Do what I've called you to do. Trust that I'm ever living. Trust that I am the one who reigns over you. Trust that I never change and trust that I can do what I said I would do. Can we trust him, church? Can we? Do we ask him to provide? Do we? Because we only believe something in as much as we act upon it. Do we value times of dedicated prayer for the church where we come to God as, as his children? and express our dependency together. This book calls us to consider our ways. I have to tell you honestly, when I come to a prayer, a dedicated prayer meeting, and 2%, 2% of the church population is present, that makes me wonder how much we really, really believe that God is our provider. You know, James throws cold water on our self-sufficiency when he says, you have not because you ask not. <laughs> but this is something that every effective servant of God must learn, that we live lives of trusting God, who is ever-present, supremely authoritative, unchanging in nature, and faithful to provide. God has promised himself. You know, when he, when, Abraham, when he pulled Abraham aside and made the promise to Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you. Your offspring is going to bless the entire world. I'm going to make your name great. But you know what he didn't say? He didn't say, trust my blessings. He said, I am your exceedingly great reward. It's not what God does for us. It's God who is our blessing. And all that we are in the Lord is based on God's intervention in our lives. Can I get an amen to that? An audible amen? We're nothing. And we would be bound for an eternity in hell fire were it not for that intervention. And so ought to be our daily living. But the reality is we see our shortcomings. We see the failures that are constant in our lives. We know our sinfulness. 
we see the inability to achieve what we know we ought to be doing in the Lord. These are issues that face all of us. But the humble heart hears the word of God and sees itself in all its insufficiency to accomplish what God has called us to do. And that is why we need the next message. The next message. Message three to Haggai. The second point in this message is that we are to receive God's blessings. Listen to this message. Verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. All right, so God gives them an illustration. He gives them a, a, an object lesson from the law regarding life under the law. And then he gives them the conclusion, verse 13. Haggai said, I'm sorry, 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Did you hear what God said? <laughs> That's kind of, a, kind of a startling thing. God says to his people, everything about you is unclean. Everything. You know, we tend to, we say we believe the, 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 um, the fundamentals of Reformed faith. You know, sola scriptura, the word only. Sola fide, faith alone. All the solas. But we live as if sola bootstrapis is a principle. That we can rise up on our own strength. And God says, no, you can't. No, you can't. Everything about you is unclean. Do you realize that, folks? That there's nothing whereby we can come to God in ourselves? Nothing. Our daily lives, their daily lives, their religion, our religion, everything is unclean in and of ourselves. And in verses 15 and 17, he even tells them that in his discipline uh, that is pure and holy, they acted stubborn-heartedly and didn't turn to God. And we aren't so much unlike Israel. But you know, this is actually a message of encouragement, so I don't want you to forget that as we go through this. The way that they were didn't surprise God, and the way that we are doesn't surprise God. This is actually precisely the reason God acts independently of our humanity to bring about the blessing of his salvation, because it can't happen from us. There is nothing any of us can do to remedy the condemnation that we have in, in front of God's holy judgment bench. And so he reminds them that it is God who cleanses. Look at verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. This is not a good situation. I'll unpack that in just a second. But listen to this. But from this day on, I 
will bless you. I want you to keep in mind that this is a, this is a message of encouragement to them. It is God who cleanses. That is the contextual implication here. The blessing coming is the blessing of purity for them. Now, you may object and say, Dave, I know God cleanses. I'm a believer. Well, can I remind you, beloved, that the same grace that saved you is the grace that keeps you daily? Remember, the message is given to a people of God, and it was their consistent disobedience as the people of God that God is dealing with. And so their situation is illustrated by the great need. Check this out. Notice, uh, Haggai dates the things he's saying. Consider this from the day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. That is our November, December. He says the seed is yet in the barn. Well, if it's in the barn, it's not in the ground. And it's late. The harvest is over. It's not doing them any good this year. And then he says, you got nothing this year. Can you feel it? They're in a really bad situation. This agrarian society has nothing. And, and there's no hope of no, anything. No hope of nothing. No hope of anything until next year. We learned in chapter 1 that God actually frustrated their work. God blew away their prosperity. God did that because he was disciplining them. And so now they, they are in a desperate position. And God loves, can I just say that again? God loves to back you up in a desperate situation, to back you up against the Red Sea so that you can see his hand delivering you because often we want to live in life in our self-sufficiency. And God says, that is not what I'm calling you. He says, but from this day forward, I will bless you. What's he blessing? Remember, chapter 1, verse 12, they obeyed. They have now have a posture of obedience. Yeah, they're in a bad situation because they didn't do what God called them to do. He disciplined them. They turned back to the Lord. And this is why the message is here. They need to see that God is fueling the fire of their obedience here. Yeah, the situation's desperate. God's God. God is God. And so this third message that Haggai gives the people of God is sort of a holy but God in their lives. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he gives this long list of our deadness. And then he says this, but God. <laughs> but God he has raised us up together with Christ. And dear ones, Every redeemed person of God has a holy but God in their lives. There is nothing we could ever do to make ourselves acceptable to God. Everything about us is unclean. Only God's gracious and merciful cleansing work in our behalf brings us to himself. Those are truths that we've got under our belt, right? Supposedly, yes. <laughs> Most of the time, we still stumble. But I want you to see this. Even in the darkest situations that you will face, obedience, if you will embrace God's objectives and lean on his cleansing for daily life, his obedience, your obedience, brings God's promise of provision and restoration. I will 
bless you, he says. Can you believe it? Well, persevering with God's priorities in view also involves something else. And that is a long-range faith. You see, it's not enough just to know God in this world. If we just know God in this world, it's just, he's just a coping mechanism. There's a hope beyond this world. The last message is the shortest one of all. It's only four verses. And we're calling this anticipating the ultimate and true kingdom. Just as God had pulled back the curtain in chapter 1 to show Israel how he was behind the scenes, frustrating their daily lives, blowing away their prosperity, doing against them what would bring them back to God, so is God going to do right now in these verses to show he's going to pull back the curtain a little bit and show his sovereignty for the future, to reveal what he will do. The first thing he talks about is the coming collapse of Gentile kingdoms. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Just an editorial note here, that is the same day that the third message came, the one we just finished talking about in verses 10 through 19. It's kind of like God says, let that message sink in for a few minutes or a few hours. And then he sends Haggai back with another, one more thing to consider. (laughs) You need. To consider that God is the God of all eternity and that he's going to do something on this planet that is absolutely magnificent. 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. All Gentile kingdoms are one day going to come crumbling down, and beloved, let me I remind you that the United States of America is one of those. You cannot trust your nationality. You must, as God's people, you must trust that God has made you his person, his people. We must first and foremost understand that this world is on a collision course with God's judgment. It is dying. It is not our home. We have a home in eternity awaiting on us. No, we labor for that eternal kingdom. A city not made with hands, the book of Hebrews says. It is yet to come. That is the ultimate reality that holds us. And it is pictured in this final prophetic word. The language, admittedly, is somewhat cryptic. And as a former pastor once said, who's with the Lord now, the main things are the plain things. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to pull out the plain things, okay? You with me on that? It's going to be fun. Here we go. Notice, God is working. This collapse of all kingdoms is going to be the work of God. Eight times in this reference, if you count the times I've highlighted here, you'll see eight references to God taking the initiative to destroy these kingdoms. It will affect the entire world. I'll shake heaven and earth. I'll overthrow the throne of kingdoms, the kingdoms of the nations. 
every one. No exceptions. To Haggai, it's yet in the future. Notice the future implications of these phrases. And then he gives him a pictured promise. He sees in verse 23, and he says to Zerubbabel, the governor Zerubbabel, that I'll take you and I'll make you like a signet ring. Now, he doesn't say that Zerubbabel is the signet ring. He says you're like a signet ring. So, Zerubbabel's position is the analogy. When the governor says to do something, what do the people do? They do it because he's a person of authority. And the governor in their day had a signet ring. It is exactly the way it sounds. It is a ring that puts an image in wax when a letter or a document was prepared and signed and it bore his image, his seal. And so when the document came, it had all the authority of the person who sent it. Zerubbabel's position as governor represents God's authority. Why? Because God put him there. And these words to Zerubbabel are looking forward to an image of God's authority that was to Haggai Haggai, still yet to come. That signet ring pointed to the one who would end all earthly kingdoms and bring in his own kingdom. Now, admittedly, I don't get that from Haggai. But we don't live in Haggai's day, do we? We live in the day when God has completed his entire word and we have all of his word to glean from. That signet ring, beloved, is Jesus Christ. A governmental representative of God's eternal kingdom. Why do I say such a thing? Well, thanks for asking. Remember this verse? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Read the next words with me. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Haggai shines a whole new light on that familiar verse, doesn't he? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The God, uh, the New Testament tells us this is Jesus. (laughs) Now, the government hasn't yet been placed on his shoulder. He is forever and always will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But there is a day coming when the kingdom will be given to him and he will bear it. And what the Old Testament looked forward to, the New Testament teaches us, is fulfilled in Christ. Christ the Lord, the Messiah whom the prophets foretold, who came on the scene, who is our Lord, who willingly laid down his life in our behalf so, and, and so that we could trust his death in our place and his resurrection as the victory that is ours to bring us to God and his kingdom is growing. We saw this last week. Every time a soul believes, they are brought into the temple of God. The temple of God is spiritual. It is person by person being built until someday that kingdom will overpower all Gentile kingdoms and be the invisible kingdom will become the visible kingdom when the Lord himself stands on this earth in person. Listen, more to more prophecies of God's worldwide phenomenon coming. I love this. Isaiah 49, 6 says, it is too small. (laughs) Don't you just love that? He's already promised Isaiah that he's going to redeem the nation. And he says, that's just just not big enough. I'm going to make you a light for the nation. 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The book of Daniel tells us that to him, speaking forward of this one who would come, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Oh, beloved, when right now the kingdom's invisible. Jesus even said that to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. You can't see it right now. We see a little bit of it, don't we? Because we see one another. And every believer is a living stone placed in God's building, if you will, the building of his temple where he dwells. And there's coming a day, Peter reminds us, when that last soul will believe. Look at what he says here. The Lord is not slow concerning his, to fulfill his promise, and in context that means his promise to return, as some count slowness, but is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. On that day, the kingdom will come. The king of kings will stand literally on this planet. This is something we are to look forward to. This is something that needs to hold us in our hope. Every eye will see him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved, but that means everybody's going to see the king of kings on this planet, and they will confess that he is the king of kings. But to all the redeemed souls, we will rejoice. We will sing together of his amazing and magnanimous grace that caught us up in our lostness, in our condemnation, and delivered us from darkness and implanted the life of Christ in us and who uses us as his instruments of grace in the lives of others. Haggai. was God's instrument to confront the lives of God's people with their misplaced priorities. And he's also shown us how to live by God's priorities. May I remind you in summary that God's priority is summed up right here. I delivered to you of first importance. What, how much importance? First. This is what's primarily on God's heart. That Christ died our sins. Every person in your life context needs to come to understand this, that they have a potential hope because Christ gave his life for them. How does that happen? <laughs> Again, thanks for asking. But you, Peter says, you are a chosen generation. But, but Dave, he wrote that to the first century. Yeah, well, Christ hasn't come back yet, has he? We're still part of that chosen generation. A royal priesthood. What does a priest do? We're almost a small group. Somebody tell me. What does a priest do? I know you know the answer. He serves the Lord by doing what? By representing God to people. Did you hear what Peter said? You are a holy priesthood. You are the representation of God to the people of the earth. He even goes further. He says, you're a holy nation. You're a God's own special people. For what purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The temple Christ is building is the temple of redeemed souls. 
What does it look like as you go through life? Well, some of them are here. It looks like redeemed souls. It also looks like people who will believe but haven't yet. What kind of representative are you being, beloved? Have you engaged God's priorities? If you haven't, then the message of this book that he says two times in chapter one is consider your ways. Turn from your misplaced priorities. Embrace God's objectives. Receive his cleansing. If you need salvation, receive his cleansing for salvation. If you're stumbling in your walk with God, receive his cleansing for the grace that you need today. And anticipate that he's coming. He's coming. It may be soon. Amen? Father, we thank you that you are true. Your word is firm and it is true and we say the amen to it because it encourages our hearts. We love you that you've spoken simply and plainly. We needed to hear it, Lord. I needed to hear it. Thank you for loving us enough to give us your revelation. Thank you for loving us enough to save us from our own self-destruction. Thank you for being with us daily. Thank you, Lord, that you're not finished with this earth and someday you will right all wrongs and you will stand and bring in the reign of righteousness. Oh, Lord, we're excited about that. We may not live. We may be taken in death before that day, but we will see it. Because your word tells us the dead in Christ will rise first. And you will bring with you all the hosts of saints when you come. We will be with you. We will see you reign on this earth. God, thank you for that encouragement. Father, would you help us as your people to live this life, however many days we have left, according to the promises that are yea and amen that are true and faithful because you are true and faithful. We pray these things in the name of our faithful and true Lord Jesus Christ.